Hey, it's Tobias here. If you want to learn a little bit about my firm or see my portfolio, head on over to acquirersfunds.com. When you're ready, sir. Yeah, go ahead. Hi, I'm Tobias Carlisle. This is the Acquirers Podcast. My special guest today is Scott Jackson. He's the Chief Investment Officer of Ravenwood Capital Management. He's got a microcap value strategy that's very interesting. We're going to talk about a specialty of his, which is Freedom of Information Act requests and what he's found when he's run those. We'll be talking to him right after this. Tobias Carlisle is the founder and principal of Acquires Funds. For regulatory reasons, he will not discuss any of the Acquires Funds on this podcast. All opinions expressed by podcast participants are solely their own and do not reflect the opinions of Acquires Funds or affiliates. For more information, visit acquiresfunds.com. So you're you're a 12-year veteran US Army. What what were you doing there? Yeah, so I was in the I was on the Army National Guard for uh, for 12 years. Went in um, in 2001 after uh, at, well before uh, signed up before September 11th, and then uh, went in in uh in basically like october to basic training and man it was just like flooded with people and then um and then did a tour from left in like 2003 to go train and then went to iraq from uh like march 2004 to march 2005 got back and then just started going to school and then that's where i kind of started digging into to stocks and, and markets and stuff like that and started really reading and then um and then went to got into Gonzaga, went back to Iraq for another for another year, and then um, and then uh, and then started up, uh, jumped on the this guy was starting a uh, small microcap value shop, and so then that's that was kind of where you know he'd been doing it for I don't know 10, 15 years or something like that, and you know that's where I, I figured out that you could make you know. 30%, 100%, 200% on, on stocks, you know, and before that, it's like everybody was, you know, kind of told you that, uh, that, you know, you could expect an 8% return. So, um, yeah, those little but, mic- yeah when, the micro caps rip around. Oh man, they're so volatile. It's not, it's like, uh, like the way I kind of describe it is that, uh, it, it's like, it's like being on a, a, a different, in a different solar system with a different gravity <laughs> system, you know, like, and it can change at any time, you know? Um, but, but yeah, when I was in Iraq, I I was infantry. So, um, you know, we were running the first tour, we were running like full spectrum operations where, you know, we would, we would go from like one week, we were like kicking indoors at three in the morning and looking for, you know, weapons and bad guys and stuff. And then, um, and then we would, we would switch to patrols where we would be out in the, in the neighborhoods doing like presence patrols and, and, uh, and then we do med cap security. So for, you know, our medics and stuff, we'd go set up and help the local communities and, and we would, we would pull security for that kind of stuff and hand out water. And, and then, uh, and then like the, you know, the fourth week was typically like fixed site security. So we'd just be sitting on the towers, you know, watching cars go by and stuff. And when'd you get and it back? Was really, it, um, the first tour was, uh, so left 2000, March, 2004, and then got back, uh, March, 2005, and then, um, yeah, that, that one was, that tour was amazing, man. Cause it's like, I mean, Alibaba and the 40 thieves, like palaces everywhere, you know, what Saddam wasn't spending on, on weapons and gun, you know, um, like palaces, you know, or weapons and guns, you spend it on, on palaces. So, 
you know, like the infrastructure was just nuts and everybody else was dirt poor, but, um, there's some like amazing architecture over there for sure. Did you see that stuff? Oh yeah, no, we were, um, we were like running around, uh, all these bombed out palaces and there's like secret tunnels underneath and like dungeons and like, it's just, it's nuts, man. It was surreal. You know, it was kind of a cool experience for a 20, you know, I think I was, I was 21 when I got over there and then, um, you know, I think it was almost, I March, my birthday is March 5th. So got back just like shortly after my, uh, or I got back, I left, I got over there when I was 22, but we were in Kuwait when I was still 21. And then when I got back, I was 23. So for, you know, for a 22 year old, you know, running around, kicking indoors, just in super good shape and working out every day and seeing all that kind of stuff was, you know, just, uh, just on a different level, you know, and then like the combat aspect of it. Um, you know, I kind of figured out that I had, uh, like I just stay, stay calmer than, than a lot of other people. Yeah. Um, but, uh, you know, when like, when, when bullets start flying and stuff, um, but, uh, it's, uh, like you definitely get to see like a, a different side of yourself and get tested in a different way. And then you get to see a different side of other, other people that you're with too, you know? But, um, so yeah, when did you, was... when did you start your MBA? Um, so I, so I started up this company called Downriver Capital Management in 2010. And that was, I, uh, that was probably about like Mar like April, May, 2010. And then, um, and then I left there in 2015 to go back to school and, uh, and, and just wanted to start up my own, my own shop and create my own culture and stuff like that. And then I finished the MBA in, uh, it was like December 2016, so started the MBA in May 2015, and then finished it in like December 2016. I tried to do it in a year, but then I ended up um, having to take like one, like one class in the la- in the last semester. So, and so the guy when you were when you were learning the micro cap stuff, what was the uh, style of that firm? Oh, it was just, it was deep value. It was, uh, it we were, we were, um, like the, so if you pull up like the Russell data, like we had access to some of the Russell data and like where we, um, landed and they, and it used, I think it used investment Alliance to kind of map all the institutional managers, you know, like, uh, Donald Smith and, and some of the other ones. And, uh, and we were the lowest, uh, price to book debt to cap manager. Like if you plot that on an axis, um, you know, in a scattered plot type thing, like we were, we were the lowest in the country. Um, so, you know, it was just straight, it was, you know, and it, we were, you're still coming out of the bottom, right. After all that stuff had gotten killed and there was a lot of, a lot of low price to book stuff that still had upside. Um, and things were, things would still get washed out into that area, but man, like, uh, after two, about 2000, like we, we had crushed it for probably, I don't know, two, two or three years. Um, and, uh, like my, my portion of the portfolio, like we're probably banging down like 45% returns and I was managing, um, 20, I was thinking it was like 20% of the portfolio or something like that. And so we had landed, um, yeah, yeah. So, uh, when I joined this firm back in, uh, back in 2010, um, I, I didn't understand the space at all. And, you know, my business partner, I was like, Hey, you know, you know, where do we get the money from? We, our AUM was basically zero. 
And, uh, and so, you know, it's like high net worth family office or institutional, and then, you know, kind of walk through all of those. And then, um, and then, you know, it was like, you know, how do we get the institutional money, you know? And then, so started looking for RFPs and then just, uh, just cold calling, um, the institutions trying to looking, looking for like direct mandates and then started talking to, you know, some of the fund of funds as well. Um, and then we, we landed a, uh, a direct mandate from, from MERS of Michigan in the amount of 25 million, which was pretty cool. And that was just, that was two years in, you know, it usually takes, uh, like you need typically like a three-year track record, you know, three to five-year track record. And then, um, some of the institutions I've talked to, um, can only be like 20, 25% of your, of your total AUM. Right. Um, so we, so we had landed that and then it was kind of off to the races, but yeah, the, uh, the, the, the price to price to book space, uh, like that kind of slowed down in when the economy started slowing down in like 14 and then everything kind of, kind of stagnated. Yeah. It's been a rough run for, uh, for the deep value guys since about 2015. So I, I, I see you launching about 2015. It's a tough time to get going, but what's the, so what's the. Ravenwood is the name of your firm. What's the focus of uh, Ravenwood? What are you trying to find? Yeah, so we, we've kind of evolved over time from uh, you know philosophy like uh, you know the you know being like the lowest uh, price to book debt to cap manager. With a we we've always had like a huge focus on insider uh, transactions in the open market and insider ownership, and uh, that's kind of been driven by there's a professor at the University of Michigan. Um, I think his name, I don't want to butcher his name, but, uh, it's, I think it's Najat Sehan and, uh, he, he wrote a book called, um, it's like intelligence from insider trading or something like that. And, uh, and basically had gone through, it was kind of the same type of format as, uh, Jim O'Shaughnessy's what works on wall street and with a, with the core focus on insider transactions in the open market. And, uh, and that, the kind of the conclusion from, uh, from that book was that, you know, they tested, you know, PE and then, uh, you know, price to sales and they focused on, you know, they said, if you combine, you know, price to book with, you know, the, you know, insider buys over 10,000 shares, which is kind of arbitrary, you know, cause you have different dollar amounts. Um, then you would, you know, the, and then you go down the cap spectrum into the micro cap spectrum you end up with like 40% annual, you know, annual returns. And so that, that's kind of been the, the, the cornerstone. Um, I think I sent you a, uh, um, copy of the portfolio. If you look at the portfolio, all of our names have got just a ton of insider buying, no selling and, uh, and our stuff's pretty cheap. And like I was saying, like we've kind of evolved away from the price to book side and it's more, um, kind of your love for like, you know, uh, Enterprise value to EBITDA. Yeah, I recognize a lot of the names as I was going through. They're all, all yeah. old friends of mine. A lot of them. Uh -huh. Yeah, they're. Um, so we do that, but then we also combine it with um, we, we like really try to drill down on the catalysts, and um, so so we look at a lot of like alt data, and then so what, what's alt data? Well, alternative data, you know, so like uh, like Google Trends data, website traffic data. Um, so we'll we'll look at, um, you know, like what's going on at the top level. We'll look at like overall web traffic, like where the hotspots are. Like for example, like you know, 
the way things have evolved in the pandemic, we, um, we kind of, we didn't scrap the portfolio, but kind of sort of made, um, you know, small adjustments and then kind of came to the conclusion that we didn't, we, there were so many landmines out there that we, and then so, so much risk out there that we think that we couldn't see. So we didn't touch anything that didn't have insider buying after, um, after 315, you know, when the, when, you know, when we were in a full blown pandemic and then that kind of led us to, um, you know, typically we use screens for idea generation, but we kind of backed into it and just used insider buys and then, and then looked for, you know, looked at valuation and then if valuation was good. Then we moved on to the catalyst and typically you could pair the catalyst up. You could figure out why the insiders were buying. So, um, you know, a lot of it was, was e-commerce driven, um, you know, uh, e-sports video game type stuff that was cheap. And, uh, and, and it did, uh, we, we did really well. So I see, uh, you've got, you, you've got this bait framework. Do you want to walk us through the bait framework? Yeah. So, so, so bait, um, you know, uh, Michael Mobison's kind of, kind of gone over this, uh, you know, in a bunch of different podcasts and, and, a, and, a, I think he wrote a paper on it called who's on the other side, but, um, essentially the sources of alpha come from inefficiencies in the market and, you know, they've been narrowed down to, uh, you know, the bait framework, behavioral, informational, um, analytical and technical. And so, you know, behavioral, the behavioral aspect is, you know, you watch, you watch behavior. We watch behavior from corporate insiders. That's how, that's how we kind of utilize the framework. And then, um, and then, you know, Mark, you have the behaviors from, from market participants and, and typically, you know, we see it, all the time where they kind of over extrapolate and, you know, pile in, things go up. They think, you know, things are good. They're going to, and they, you know, treat it, treat it like trees are going to grow to the moon, you know, and they, and they don't. Um, so we, we kind of exploit those inefficiencies and then, um, infer informational. And then, so if you look at like the micro cap space, it's pretty symmetrical. So if you look at like the number of analysts per company, you know, you for on companies greater than 12 billion, you end up with like 18.54 analysts per company, you know, and this is just from a screen on 1231, uh, 2019, um, for analyst coverage. And then, you know, you get all the way down to, and it, it steps down and, and kind of symmetrically, uh, kind of moves down towards you get to the less than $300 million range and you end up with like 2.5 analysts per company. And then if you look at companies with no analyst coverage, there's like 1.2% of the companies with greater than $12 billion market cap have got, uh, you know, 1.2% analyst coverage or uh, with no analyst coverage is 1.2%. And then less than 300 million, you get, uh, you have 70, 71% of the companies have no analyst coverage. So it's kind of an informational inefficiency, less people digging, you know, for the sell side banks, the, a lot of the market caps are too small where, you know, they, they get that, you know, three cents a trade or one cent a trade or whatever it is now, half a cent a trade. And, um, it just does, it doesn't make economical sense for them to, to initiate coverage on a lot of these micro cap names. So there's just a lot less information, um, floating around out there in the world, which, you know, you get, a, you get divergence and, and, um, and, and value from, from price, um, because people just can't assign a value to it. They don't, cause they just don't have the information. And then go ahead. 
yeah, on the technical front, what's the what's what are you looking for technically? Yeah, technically we've been we've been kind of watching like ETF passive flow. So I think everybody's seen that there's like a chart flowing around out there where passive is supposed to outtake active here. Um, I think in like 2021 or something like that. So we do look at, um, you know, like one of the things that we did, you know, coming out of the bottom, we looked at the ETF ownership and, uh, and, uh, you know, that it sells off, they get pushed down pretty hard and then, you know, money comes back into them. So, you know, that's, uh, that, that wasn't like a cornerstone to it, but you know, it's just a technical factor. And then you have other opportunities arise, you know, caused by force liquidations and delistings and, and things of that nature. Yeah. So that's what creates the opportunity. And then you, you buy into it in the hope that they kind of, uh, they get caught back into those indexes maybe. Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And they just come, come skyrocketing back. And then, um, the, the analytical, so the analyticals, you know, like you, you take information, then what, what do you do with it? You know, how do you, um, how do you analyze information d- differently? And, you know, what's your edge on that front? And, uh, like, like I was saying, we kind of, we, we look at, we look at alt data, we pair that it's, it's kind of like a, like a cross-sectional framework where we compare all these things and they kind of confirm each other. So, you know, is there a catalyst like the insider buying says there's a catalyst. And then we try to, you know, one, one of the things that we really focus on is to um, kind of kind of uh, identify red flags, you know, whether it's fraud, weakness in internal controls, uh, changes in, in auditor statements, you know, um, just you know, language, general language changes. Um, we do view a lot of the black line reports where uh, it highlights changes in language throughout the uh, Ks and Qs, 10K and 10Q. How are you identifying the weakness in the internal controls? You're looking for that particularly in the auditor's we're, report. Yeah, well, we're we're looking for the language, but then we also look for red flags like, um, you know, net income higher than operating cash flow, right? Um, and then, uh, you know, uh, stuff with high cash flow, but but doesn't really, uh, or you know, things that have high earnings and like the low cash flow. You know stuff like uh, like Wirecard that was just one that that just went down, and then um, and then on the other side we have some primary information too that we do to kind of reduce risk. We think it it reduces risk. You know, with microcaps, I think one of your biggest risks is fraud and just getting blindsided. So um, we look at uh, we look at we do FOIA requests with uh, with various government agencies, but but mostly we do it with the SEC. And the way it's set up, the SEC will tell you if there's an active investigation going on. By, and they, don't, they, they can't like, tell you that there's an active investigation going on, but they, they have to tell you whether, there's doc, whether documents are being withheld. And so that's a, um, a B7A exemption is what it's called. And so uh, quarterly, we, we do requests on all the companies in the portfolio just to, just to make sure. And we've gotten ahead of a, a few of them. And they're routine. Like I think, like every three years, companies get reviewed by the Department of um, of Corporate Finance for the SEC. But um, the investigations are different because it's they're done by the Enforcement Division. So um, w- when you get when you get basically records being withheld, it, it says for invest- investigative purposes and law enforcement purposes, which that 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 doesn't have anything to do with the uh, Division of Corporate Finance. You know that's all uh, that's all the enforcement division. So so we look for stuff like that, and then 
you know, and then we just, we just don't take any risk on that. You know, typically where there's smoke, there's fire. We, we're not going to, you know, if something, if something's cheap, it, it might be because of somebody's figured out something like that and they're short it. Um, so like, I wonder, uh, um, like, like there's a, there's a company right now that we did do, we did four requests on, on the, um, on the short side. And that's, uh, there, there was a, uh, another requester that did, um, a FOIA request for, uh, this company called tactile medical systems. And there's been a couple short reports on it. And, uh, and they they basically, uh, came to the conclusion that the revenues are being overstated. So then, you know, I see that. And then, so I do one with the VA and then it's just for, just for one year, we have, we have ones out for, um, for, for more years, uh, to increase the sample size of it. But, um, I, I think that the, the, the revenues based on what the VA are, t- are telling me, um, are, they're overstated by about, I think about 6 million for, I think it was 2000, it was either 2018 or 19. What, how material is that to what they're earning? Um, I don't, man, I don't remember the, the split between, so they, they, they sell basically like one product. So it's super easy to track. And then most of the revenues are from CMS and for, you know, for I think center center for Medicaid and I forget exactly what it stands for, but, um, that one's like very overstated. And then, the and then the, the one from the VA, I think it was, they told me that there are, they had 25 million in product sales and the company reported 30, 31 or something like that. So, you know, it's, it's quite a bit, but then there's also like short reports on kickbacks for the company and all kinds of stuff. So, you know, I don't know, I don't know what's, I don't know what's going on there, but, um, you, you know, we, we find stuff like that. And then we've got a, we've got a couple more for your requests of the sec. Like I follow, um, like a lot of the short sellers on Twitter and when they, you know, when they start, talking about names and, and fighting over, you know, with the, with the longs and stuff, like I'll just go run FOIA requests on stuff and, and then, uh, you know, send it, send it to some of the people that are talking on Twitter, um, and just be like, Hey, you guys, you guys got an active investigation on this thing, but yeah, dude, I, just, I think it's super interesting. I think it's one of the main reasons that I wanted to talk to you because I, so you, part of your strategy, you find these companies and I didn't actually appreciate that you were doing this for your whole portfolio, but you submit a Freedom of Information Act request to see what's happening. And so you submit them to the SEC and they have, mm-hmm. they're have they prevented from, they can't release the documents, but they can tell you if there's an active investigation going on. But you've been doing this for long enough that you know that every three years or so, these companies get ordered by the, or they get approached by the SEC. So that's not unusual. You're looking for something that's been handed across to enforcement. Is that is that what I'm understanding? Right. And then as far as, so it's, it's, it's basically, you know, the, the government's giving you, um, somewhat n- non-public information. Right. And it's, and, and the, um, the, the, the power of that information is kind of determines whether an investigation is disclosed or undisclosed. A lot of the times the investigations are undisclosed. And for the record, I don't, I don't, um, I, I don't own, I, I don't have a longer short position in tactile, um, it's, it's just, just something that, that I've been kind of digging into. So just walk but, us through uh, the process. What, what, how do you, how do you submit a freedom of information act request? Yeah. So if you go to, if you go to, uh, FOIA.gov, um, on a, you know, in the U S here, you, you can basically, it pops up with a box for the agency. 
you want to submit a FOIA request to, and and a lot of them uh, are are on there. Some of them you have to go to the to the website for like you know Department of Homeland Security, I think, and and then um, I believe I'm not sure there there are a couple others that you have to submit you, you know just straight through email um, because they don't have electronic systems developed. But uh, you know, let's say you you um, you, you know, you want to do it through, I think the SEC, it funnels it through to the SEC's website and then you input, you know, your information and then the company, and then you have a list of like what information you want. You know, you can pull, you know, complaints to the SEC. That one's all, that one's always fun reading, um, you know, some of the, uh, some of the, some of the complaints, you know, it's a, a lot of the times when you pull up the, the complaints to whether the, uh, whether it's the SEC or the FTC, it's, it's, uh, it's the longs complaining about sh- short attacks and short sellers. <laughs> <laughs> that's yeah, that's pretty pretty entertaining sometimes. Well, what what um, do, you, do you have you ever found anything in there that's sort of uh, that's helped you make a decision one way or the other? Um. Oh yeah, for sure. Yeah, definitely. Um, we've we found a couple of of, uh, of active investigations on stuff that that we own that weren't that weren't weren't disclosed. Um, like one of them was uh, was gain capital, and uh, I think that uh, I don't know. I think we got one through the SEC, but then we also got one through the CFTC, which was like the main governing body, you know, from an FX standpoint. And then you go back and you you search for like through the legal documents, and uh, and there's just a ton of complaints on stuff. But you know that thing, and it, se- it seems like that the, they're uh, like they're they're not good for for the stock price. You know, I don't know if people, it's hard to, there's no way to tell if other people are really figuring it out. You, I mean, you can see um, if, if through the FOIA logs, like what other people are requesting. So like when I look for um, like on the short side, like I'll, I'll search, like I just download, I download all of the SEC's FOIA logs and then I'll just search the name of the company and see who all's done, um, you know, request on that specific company and then I'll go and sometimes I'll request the requests um, that have been done on that company to see what what these some of these hedge funds and some of these firms that are contracted by hedge funds are looking for um, so they don't have yeah, to no, disclose that the, the 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 companies don't have to disclose that to the market um I think I think it's it's kind of it's subjective uh, I think that it's uh, I mean it's it's not sometimes I, I think that they can make the case that it's not a material event or, you know, obviously if there's like some, uh, some big, huge fraud, like they're not going, they're not gonna, they're going to try not to disclose it. Right. But, um, yeah, a lot of the times they don't. So like one of the first things I do after I submit the FOIA request and ask for, and I have specific language that I use, ask for, you know, I think it's like six types of records, like subpoenas, wells, notices, you know, anything that speaks to the, you know, conduct of, uh, you know, officers and, and, and directors involved with, you know, that, that, that company and, the, and its subsidiaries. And then, um, and then I'll search, I'll also search, uh, like if, uh, like I'll look for, like I'll go on Edgar and I'll pull up all the, the correspondence. So if you type on like Edgar or, or Bloomberg, it's uh, C-O-R-R-E-S-P is the, I think like the code for like, like 10K you'd punch into to Edgar. And then you can start reading, like, if there's any letters, you can see, like, when the last communication was. So, you know, you, you can see what 
what the division of corporate finance was interested in if they had any any um, any back and forth dialogue that they have to publish I think that's they I think they do have to publish any communications with the company like any inquiries and, re, and responses and stuff like that let's just talk a little bit about uh, your strategy and how that uh, how that creates the portfolio so how do you think about position sizing and uh, you know do you let your winners run do you trim what's the what's the thought process around the portfolio yeah so um, and then real quick go back um, we, we also we started an LLC called called FOIA Warriors LLC um, we just started that a few months a few months ago because this stuff is kind of gaining traction um, but yeah back to back to uh, well, just tell us sizing. tell us about the tell us about the FOIA warriors. Oh, it's well, we've been doing this since I think it was like early 2018, and then um, we just we do some outside outside business like con- consulting type type work as well. Um, on the we do it on the on the local level, like with with records, we do requests um, like with the city, and then we do requests with. Um, you know, with the, with the state and then, and then, and then on the federal level as well. So it's, um, like it works great for, uh, for, for searching, um, you know, for, for like 911 calls and stuff like that. Um, we've actually, actually done that, like digging, digging super deep on some of the shorts, like pulled up 911 calls and, and, um, there are 911 uh, calls on the shorts. Yeah, well, on management teams, yeah. Well, not on the shorts, but like on the, on the uh, some of the, the short candidates, yeah. So um, on on the management, yeah. So it's like, look, look, what what kind of stuff? What are you finding? Oh, just like uh, just like neighbors, uh, you know, neighbors calling, um, you know, because the dogs are barking, and then uh, like DV type stuff, and then you know, e- each request back you get from a record, you get breadcrumbs, right? So. Like you'll get traffic tickets and then you'll know the car type, you know, and then the VIN number. So then you run the VIN number and then it pops up at someone's house at one in the morning, you know, that's not their house and just like, just stuff like that, you know, and you just track it down. I mean, there's like no limit to like how deep you can go with that stuff. It gets crazy, man. (laughs) And these guys, these guys are managers of these guys are managers of public companies. Yeah. Yeah. But um, yeah. And then you look for, I mean, and then if you're if you're long something, I mean you, you want you want to know if, if you see any like red type of red flags yeah. or hear any weird stuff, like you would want to you know you would yeah. probably want to start digging into it. And it doesn't take long; it only takes uh, you know I can I can put together a, like a four request with the SEC probably in like sixty seconds. So yeah. you know you can you can fire off a lot, and then it's just managing the information, and then oh, and then you know back to the FOIA side. Like when you when you get you typically will get um, a response and then you have to appeal everything because sometimes they're wrong sometimes they don't find everything and that forces um, general counsel I think is typically uh, the ones that kind of check the FOIA uh, officers work basically and so they'll go back through and they'll check all the databases and then and then they'll um, they'll say hey you know we missed something. Like I found, um, it was kind of weird. I found one on GameStop that was from the end of last year. And it was, it's like, oh, like we're withholding records. And then I had to submit like an appeal and then it comes back. And, and then, then they, then they give me the records, but it takes time to redact them and stuff like that. And then, and then you get like, I, I think I got a, a case closing report from that one. 
um, you know, and, and then they recommend like no action, you know, stuff like that. A lot of them will recommend no action. You know, SEC is not in the business of, uh, you know, of, 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 you know, put companies out of business and, and disrupting the financial market. So I think that they're pretty lenient for, you know, first time offenders, you know, but I'm sure if you get, you know, you know, you get multiple offenses, then they'll come through or if it's, you know, straight, straight blatant fraud on a, on a huge level, they'll come through and they'll do their thing. But, uh, well, let's, yeah. let's talk about the portfolio a little bit. So, um, how do you think about sizing? How do you think about managing the portfolio? Yeah. So, um, you know, it's, it's, it's kind of a, kind of like almost like a ranking function, right? So you look at, you know, the, um, you know, valuation, you know, I think it's, you know, there's a lot of white papers and, you know, number one, you know, contributor returns is valuation, low valuation. So, you know, the lower the valuation, the higher that gets ranked, the higher position size. And then we look at insider buying and then, and then pair that with the catalyst and, and, uh, you know, if the catalyst appears very large and insider, you know, purchases are, are very large, those, those are typically the ones that end up the largest in the portfolio and the, the, the cheaper they are, typically they get, they get overweighted. Right. And then as valuation kind of, you know, closes, closes that gap between, um, you know, where, where it's at and what it's worth, you know, you kind of lighten up the position as, as, as your upside kind of decreases, um, so that's how, that's how we kind of think about how many positions know. in the portfolio and how big's the biggest position. Oh yeah. So, um, the biggest position right now is, uh, I think is around 10, 11%. And, um, we have about, I think 20, 23 names or something like that in the portfolio right now. And, uh, so it's, it's probably more concentrated, but you know, if you look at, you know, like modern portfolio theory stuff, like, uh, you know, the, the benefits of diversification, you don't, you don't get much more diversification from 20 names than you do from 200. And you don't get, you know, if you, I mean, if you had eight names, like there's not much difference between eight and 20. So, um, you know, we, we, uh, we don't have enough bandwidth to, to have 200 names in the portfolio. and don't think that that really, uh, will create alpha. You know, I think you you create alpha by by finding the right stuff and 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 overweighting the the stuff that's the cheapest with the highest catalyst, and then you know you, you collect your money and then move on to the uh, to the next thing. And you know we have a lot of stuff that will you know it just kind of ebbs and flows. So as you know, as that gap between um, you know you know what something's trading at and 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 what it's worth kind of closes you know, we'll reduce the position and then it'll kind of go back down. Um, you know, I think Greenblatt said, you know, it's, uh, I think he had, you know, he said, you know, stocks up 25% in a year. Most stocks are up 25% a year, down 25% a year, but it's like the intrinsic value of the business that didn't, didn't, didn't fluctuate by 50%. Right. So, um, you know, you get, you get these moves, whether they're, you know, technical in nature or, or, um, or for, for whatever reason, and and you just get you just get price moves. But um, we always try to buy stuff that's that's cheap and and um, yeah. Uh, do you want to talk about the portfolio? What what what's your uh, what's your favorite position in the portfolio right now? Mm, I don't know if I should talk about the portfolio for for regulatory reasons. Um, I just don't, man. I don't want to be seen as like pumping, you know, something that we own. 
Well, let's talk about um, stuff that you've held in the past. What about Explore? Do you continue to hold that? Oh no, that got that got acquired. So that was uh, Explore Technology. They were um, a uh, uh, like ruggedized tablet and uh, and handheld device manufacturer. And uh, they, they went through a, a turnaround in in 2017, and then uh, and then started executing. And there was a ton of insider insider buying on that one. And then they ended up uh, going into July 2018. They were uh, they were launching the, uh, the the handheld business, and uh, I it's I probably like a month before that we, we the company got the company got bought out by zebra technologies but probably a month before i spent about two hours on a call with uh with ir and uh and the company was already thrown off cash flow and then um they were just launching into the handheld business and like the economics were pretty amazing and there was a lot of operating leverage in there and uh and it was just like just right on the on the cusp of, of an inflection point to the upside and then you know, obviously, I, I mean, I feel like I was right. You know, the the old make it or buy it thing. Zebra just came through and and acquired them at six six bucks a share. Um, and I think I think our cost basis was uh, what was that like uh, three fifteen or something like that or three fifty. Yeah, three three eighteen was our average price on that one. Um, and that that was probably like the quickest buyout that we've ever had. We we get a lot of. Um, we get a, get a lot of M and A in the portfolio in the microcap space. All the all the larger companies tend to swallow up the smaller ones. So you know that's I had a slide on that one in there for um, you know for 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 M and A on microcap. If you look at like all the public M and A deals by market cap, fifty five percent of them happen at below the three hundred uh, million dollar market cap level. And then if you look at the uh, like the M and A deal premium, you know like the the you know like one day move in a, in a stock when they're acquired it's on average 46 percent and then you know just looking at that uh that explore technologies um that one was uh you know that one that one got uh got taken out like a 47 percent premium so like right in line with uh with the average yeah that's a nice bump so I, 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 not to force you to talk about companies in the portfolio, but there's a few old friends of mine that I have to talk about with you in there. So let's let's talk about let's talk about GameStop. Everybody knows about GameStop. What's the uh, what's the thesis there? All right, yeah. Let me. Um, I got to read the disclosures real quick. Then <laughs> <laughs> got to do it right, man. All right. All right, nothing I say today should be considered an investment advice. Past performance does not guarantee future returns. Before making investment decisions, investors should consult a licensed professional and consider fees and expenses, uh, their their investment objectors and risk in, involved before they uh, make any investment decisions. I have been so advised. <laughs> but um, yeah, uh, GameStop, that's, uh, that, that's a really interesting one and, and it seems pretty controversial. I mean, it's... Uh, it kind of appears to be a melting ice cube, right? And then um, we, I think we kind of talked about it a little bit on uh, on on Twitter, but uh, I mean the man Q Q one and uh, and Q four were just brutal, right? Going into the end of the console cycle, um, but it, but I think that I think that Michael Berry's right, right? Like um, if you look back 
at, at cash flows and stuff, you can see that, uh, that, uh, that the console cycle does bring a lot of new revenues. And then the consoles come with pretty high margin and the hard, the hardware sales. Um, but the man COVID is just has saved, you know, GameStop pretty well. There's, uh, you can't find a Nintendo Switch. Every time they get one, they're gone. And uh, it, the COVID has just accelerated uh, the move to uh, to esports and gaming in general. And then if you just think about it from like a market share standpoint for you know entertainment in general, you know you can't go to the movies anymore. You know you can't. You, you know the bars have been basically closed for the most part. No one wants to go out. So you got all that, all the all those hobbies and and uh, things that used to eat up your time and money, kind of shifting to uh you know to, to gaming and and things of that nature um you know we're going into uh we're going into the holiday season where they're going to release the uh, the next console um for the uh for the xbox and the and the uh and the playstation you know at the same time you know i i think that it's you know i, I think that the the probability is pretty high that we're going to get another round of stimulus or unemployment and it's probably going to continue to pay people more than what they uh what they were getting before so it's i think there's uh, if you look at disposable income like it's just kind of skyrocketed you know with the checks and the unemployment so i think that that's that that's going to uh really um drive those those console sales this cycle so i think that people could be really surprised yeah, so for folks who don't know, I'm sure that this is everybody, but Michael Burry, who's the big short guy played by Christian Bale in the movie, uh, he's he's a phenomenal investor. Uh, everybody knows this, I know, but just for the two people out there who've never heard of him, um, you can see, he's on Twitter now talking a little bit, and you can see his, his holdings pu- publicly. And one of them is one of his biggest holdings is GameStop, which has been pretty controversial because it's very very cheap. There's no question about that. But the issue is. Um, as all of the sales of computer games go online, why would you need to shop through GameStop, right? So what what keeps mm-hmm. GameStop going if everything, you buy your console online and you just download the games? Yeah, so right now, I mean, you you can buy extra space, but right now I think the, the, the drives are only like one or two terabytes or something like that. And then if you, so if you look at like the new Call of Duty game that was released, like just to download, to download the core um, game for that one, it's like I think it's like uh, like 500 gigabytes, right? So it eats up a ton of the space on there. So you know, while you can add an external hard drive, like the the stock um, consoles, they just they don't have enough um, you know storage to uh, to to you know put unlimited amounts of games on there. You have to clear out some and delete them and then reinstall them. So, you know, and then also, you know, being a, a military dude, you know, when, when we were in Iraq, we played a lot of games and, uh, you know, just having like the disc to be able to give to someone else to play, you know, is, is pretty huge. And you, you kind of, you, that it just removes that optionality, you know, when you, when you just buy, you know, DLC games, right. you know, but, um, and then also, you know, from the, um, from the, you know, kind of technical side, the float is a hundred percent short right now. Right. So, I mean, that's kind of like, there's, there's like a nuclear weapon buried in there somewhere. <laughs> yeah. So you think if they get some, if they get some unexpectedly good results, that, that nuclear weapon detonates and it goes up a lot. 
Yeah, man. And I don't know. I mean, it's like, I mean, Wall Street bets, Robin Hood, you know, you know, El El Presidente, you know, uh, Dave Portnoy, man. I mean, one of these days could figure it out. And then, uh, I mean, it wouldn't take much to pile in there and and uh, set set that thing off. So, um, you know, while it, it may be a melting ice cube over a five year period. You know, I think that like the the chances are that that it's got some serious upside, like in the short to intermediate term. Um, you know, I think I think you get I think you get paid by holding that thing. Um, let's talk about another old favorite of mine, Fossil. What do they do? Yeah, so they um, so they they do uh, that. You know, they make they make watches, handbags, you know, things of those nature. Um, and then they they do white brands as well. And then, um, you know, the stock's pretty cheap right now. It's got just a ton, ton of buying, you know, which is why we own it. And then, you know, you always, when you see the buying, you're like, well, okay, what's the catalyst, right? So you start digging through and so they have a plan for like New World Fossil. They call it New World Fossil. And that's just, you know, cutting expenses. And I think a lot of these companies in COVID, like they've cut a lot of expenses that they didn't think were discretionary. And they're uh, they're kind of finding how far they can push the envelope to cutting expenses, and I think they're going to come out on the other side all right. Um, and then you know fossils, you know they're in the smartwatch market. They use the Android operating system for all their, all their smartwatches, and then they're uh, they're you know they're they're rolling out the uh, getting ready to roll out the uh, the five G stuff like LTE five G stuff for for all their all their smartwatches. So um, you know I, I think that. Uh, you know, it's, we we've done we've done well in the na- name since we've owned it, but um, you know, it's probably probably still got a ways to go. And then you go back, you, there's a lot of there's a lot of leverage in the model, right? I mean, it's just at 150, I think, back in like 150 bucks. What's it at? Like 560 right now or something like that. Um, go ahead. No, no, no. I'm, I'm, I, I, it used to be net cash. I haven't looked at it for a little while, but when I was looking at it, it was it was more cash on the balance sheet than it was a pretty healthy balance sheet. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, they got a they got a great balance sheet. Yeah, uh, and that's one of the things we look at. We don't we don't typically like to to you know we don't mess around with with debt uh, too much. You know, we like we like large cash positions. Um, so that's know. one of the nice things about the micro caps. Some of the just for whatever reason, I well, maybe this is the ones that I like to look at. But they, you do you can find them with uh, you know still being run by the the guy who started it which I think Fossil was, or they're still involved. There's two brothers, I think, who started it. And then, uh, you know, Net Cash, still earning money, still doing pretty well, just not sexy in a world where there's Apple Watches and uh, mm-hmm. you know, other things like that. Yeah, I mean, I think Apple's just eating the market with uh, their stuff is just so far advanced to everybody else's. It's not even comparable, really. And just the way the ecosystem works. So let's uh, last one. Uh, let's just on a, uh, there's a couple more I want to talk to you about, but uh, let's talk about well, let's let's talk about Potbelly first. What's the uh, what's what's Potbelly do? So Potbelly is just a they're just a sandwich shop, right? And um, I I can't, I can't remember the uh, the mix between company owned and franchise stores, but um, you know there's a sandwich shop. They make sandwiches. It's uh, not not a great like sexy business. Um, but, but the kind of the, the, the story there is that, um, you know, they're going to move more towards a, uh, towards a, uh, fran- you know, franchise model and then, you know, becomes more, uh, you, you, cut, you cut OPEX and it becomes more capital light and, and, uh, more of a compound thing. So you get multiple expansion with it. 
basically as you uh, as the uh, franchise owners pick up more stores. And uh, an old favorite of my wife's, uh, they're pretty popular around here, the Del Tacos. Yeah, that, that's a great that's a great one, man, and and a good um, a good example of insider transactions. And um, I mean, that thing was just getting getting slaughtered, you know. And uh, when when uh, I picked up the phone and called uh, called called IR, when when everything started kind of you know just just getting whacked, and you know from you know February February to March. Um, just to, just trying to figure out like how much discretionary uh, spending that they could cut, and it was, you know, it was fine. Just trying to figure out how much liquid total liquidity that they had, and uh, how much they could cut. But um, it's kind of like got like a cult following, man. You down there where you are, <laughs> that's man. It, it's, that's it's it. huge. <laughs> yeah, it's uh, my wife's we, in the cult. <laughs> yeah, man. It's it's a it's a it's a great great little company. We have one up here. It's uh, it's in another another town uh, called Poles Falls. It's like uh, like I don't know thirty minutes away or something like that. But it's like between between where I live and the lake. So I'll always take my daughter like when we're going out to the lake and just check it out and check out the menu and prices and stuff like that and just talk to you know the people working there to see what's going on. But um, that that's got a huge runway for growth. It's pretty. If you look at the store count, it's all. Um, it's all pretty much on the West Coast in California. Most of the most of the locations are in California, and then it's just, it's kind of this. It's the same thing as Potbelly. It's I think it's a better story than Potbelly, um, but uh, you know it's there's a lot of company-owned stores that that they're they're handing over to to, to, to the fran, you know franchisees, and then um, and then there's like no penetration for like half the United States. So, you know, it's, I like it, you like it. I think that it would probably pick up some traction across the rest of the states as well. You know, it's like a, it's like a, you know, I guess like a combination between Chipotle and Taco Bell. Yeah, you know? yeah, maybe but, slightly healthy. That's right, yeah, a bit, a bit healthier, healthier version than, uh, it's like the- Higher quality food, yeah. SoCal, SoCal tacos. And last one, man, uh, just because uh, I've, I've been in and out of this stock for a long time, don't own it now, but uh, IAG, I am gold. Um, yeah, I, I am, I am gold. We've, uh, we've been just cutting, cutting that, uh, that company, that's a larger market cap. So, um, sometimes when you to own stuff like miners and get exposure to gold, you know, it's it was still the same story. Like we pay our insider, you know, insider buying with, um, you know, with catalysts and stuff. And that's, that's kind of more of a, uh, we're, we're typically, you know, bottom up fundamental investors, but that's more of, a top-down thing with all the printing, you know, money, money supply expand. I think it's coming down a little bit, but you know, I think what would be up 18% year over year, and then, um, and then we got a second round coming, another another trillion on the uh, another one to one to 1.5, two trillion. Probably gonna have to do more the longer it goes on. You know, the longer we don't get stimulus, I don't think that the economy's not strong enough to to hold itself up right now. I don't think so right now, um, but. Um, just to play on gold, just to leave it play on gold. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And negative rates, right? I mean, it's there's just so much, so much debt in the system, and then there's even more debt in the system now that everybody's gone on the revolvers in response to COVID. Um, so it's just, I just, I don't know how rates are going to rise without, without, um, you know, really, really messing things up. So you know, I think that the ceiling, what was it like last time rates were rising, was like what was the 10 year like what was that three point was it 3.2 something like that and then it's it's not 3.2 anymore it's lower because there's so much more debt in the system 
So I just don't think that rates are rates are going to go very high. And then, um, you know, you get you get cost increases, and uh, you know, you, I think that you, you we have some pretty with the ten years at like negative one percent on on a real basis right now. So, you know, um, gold gold we have we've got like a basket of of miners, junior miners that have uh, that have served us well. And then you know, on the market cap issue, it's it's hard to find a mining company that's a that's a micro cap you know in my opinion it's just it costs like a billion dollars to create a mine you know so it's it's hard to it's it's kind of hard to you know to find something that's uh that's like that's somewhat stable in the you know less than 300 million dollar range you can find ones that have spent a billion dollars on their mine and they're currently micro caps <laughs> like this i think i saw intrepid potash in your in your portfolio there yeah yeah, we we owned a, we we owned that one back at my last firm, man. We owned that about like eighteen bucks, and then um, and then uh, same thing like an OPEC type of thing. That's uh, like the potash supply is mostly car, you know, controlled by a cartel, and you know the Be- Belarusian cartel. And then they came out and they said that you know that they're going to let prices dictate or uh, you know let the market dictate prices, and then. Um, it just it it plummeted and just uh, and just destroyed Intrepid Potash, and it's you know it went down. And if you look at the CEO, has just been backing up the truck on those shares for years, man. Um, so you know it doesn't mean that it's going to turn out just because he's been you know buying all that stuff. But there's a ton of assets there. They just recently, you know, over the last couple of years branched out into oil field services, uh, providing you know water. They're like smack dab right down there. Um, I want to say I don't know if it's the Permian or or what, but they got a really good location to trans transport water to uh, a lot of the uh, the drillers down there, and then um, and then um, th- they do the potash thing, and then they're also I think they're the only domestic producer um, of of potash in the United in the United States. So if like things heat up and things get more pr- protectionist. You know, you kind of have that, uh, that, that kind of that, yeah. that sort of thing thing built in, and then if we get into an inflationary environment, you know, you got that that working out as well. Yeah. But it's it's not it's not a huge weight by any means. But uh, yeah, that's great. Well, thanks so much for your time, Scott. If folks want to follow along with what you're doing, how do they do that? Yeah, I'm, um, you can uh, you can follow me on Twitter. I'm uh, at price underscore two underscore value. Um, and then, uh, yeah, email is, uh, scott at ravenwood.capital and then websites just ravenwood.capital, a little different top level domain. It's not a .com. Um, but, uh, yeah. Scott Jackson, Ravenwood Capital Management. Thank you very much. Yeah. Thank you so much, Toby. Great talking to you.